Y'all can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be picking right back up where we left off last time I was in the pulpit. And Lord willing, I'll be with you the next three weeks as we continue to look at Paul's letter to the Philippians. As I was considering what text to work on and, and what portion of it to bring before you, I, I settled on just four verses you'll see in your bulletin. Uh, but as I was working on the sermon, we only got through two of them. So uh, I guess in a way I'm saying this is part one. So let's go ahead and look at Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12, and we'll read 12 through 18, but we'll be focusing on verses 14 and 15 tonight. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Oh, gracious Father, we thank you for your word. Father, whatever remaining sinfulness is in me that would be in the way of your word being delivered tonight, take it away from me. Lord, whatever weakness would hinder your word uh, or would attempt to hinder your word, Lord, take it away from me. And let your word go forth with full power that we may hear and be changed by your instruction. Father, we thank you for the preservation of your word and we ask you to open our hearts to hear it this evening. In Christ's name, amen. So as we got started in reading this, we see it says, do not, or do all things rather, without grumbling or disputing. Now this is one of those verses that I think tends to get kind of ripped out of its context more frequently than others, and it becomes just a tool that we use when we talk to our children. You know, do everything without grumbling or complaining, or do everything without complaining or arguing. And I think that's true because we as Americans in particular have what I'm going to call an American proverb. And this is the American proverb. This is what America lives by. And I think you'll agree once we start talking about it. The American proverb, if you will, is this. The squeaky wheel gets the grease. I'm sure you've heard it. The squeaky wheel gets the grease. If you want something and you want something done, get loud about it. And then something maybe will change. It's practically our way of life. We have loud politicians, loud football players, loud newscasters and YouTubers, loud nurses and teachers and truck drivers. Everybody wants to be loud because they want attention for their cause. They want attention for their complaint. If you complain loud enough and long enough, something will be done. And so we do complain long and loud. We complain on comment cards, on Facebook, Twitter, on review sites. We complain to anyone who will listen. A lot of the time, 
if we're being honest, a lot of the time our complaining is just spoken out into the empty void of the internet hoping that somebody will hear it. We love to complain. A researcher at UC Berkeley wrote a paper, a study on complaint culture. And he was comparing the complaint culture of the United States with that of Japan. And he had this to say in the opening of his paper. Complaining is among the most common activities in modern societies. Legal complaints, medical complaints, complaints about relationships, about work, about the economy, about the government, about traffic and weather fill daily conversation. The newspapers and the television talk shows. Bureaucracies exist to handle complaints. Committees are established to look into them. Counselors and doctors treat them. Police respond to them. Lawyers argue them. Workers vent them. And spouses harbor them. This was written in the year 2000. So just for reference, that's about four years before MySpace came about. Facebook and YouTube and Twitter weren't even a dream yet. What would he say about our complaint culture now? Imagine. But there is, honestly, a difference between complaining or airing uh, displeasure and grumbling, which is the focus of Paul's words here in our passage. I'm thankful for a lot of the ways that we have to air displeasure with something, like reviews on a website when you go to buy something. You can see if somebody had a problem with the item and you know Maybe I shouldn't buy that. Maybe it's not a good item. And it's good to have that information. That's completely different from the grumbling that Paul has in mind. But I have a concern that as we look at grumbling, we confuse it with complaining. We think that we're making a complaint, but what is actually happening is we're grumbling. Oxford describes grumbling this way. It says, grumbling is the action or fact of complaining in a bad-tempered way. The action or fact of complaining in a bad-tempered way. So it's about the heart action that accompanies the complaint. So my concern is that we no longer have the ability to differentiate complaint or airing of displeasure from grumbling. We don't know the difference. And so we may be so used to airing our complaints at any opportunity that when we come into the gathering of the church, we bring that same attitude with us and do harm to the church. It's bad enough that these things are true of us generally, true enough that 23 years ago it was written about in a a research paper. But now these things are true within the church, and what danger do we bring when we have that? So to recap where we are so far, in Philippians we've looked at Paul's encouragement to the Philippians in the first chapter. He talks about all of the good things, how they had been a part of his ministry. They had been with with him in his suffering. They had sent someone to minister to him in the midst of his suffering. They had been a part of his ministry. He is encouraging them. But then as we look in chapter 2, we see that he does have some issues that he would like to address with them. Namely, their unity. Their unity as a body. In verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2, he appeals to the humility of Christ in order to exhort the Philippians to unity. He exhorts them to regard one another as higher than themselves. But there was some sort of division that was damaging the church of Philippi. So he needed to write to them concerning their unity. Why? Because in their disunity, 
They were causing harm to the cause of Christ. They were harming their witness, and they were bringing reproach upon the name of God. And so he appeals to them. In verse 2, he says, be in full accord and of one mind. And he tells them that it is, it is Christ's humility that is not only their example, but the very thing that enables them to be humble. They can be humble because they have Christ's humility. In verse 5, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. They have Christ's humility as their possession, and so they are able to be humbled. He reminds them then that it is God who works in them, both to will and to work. And then right on the heels of that, we come to our text. And that's where we see this sense of what the division might have been in the church, what disunity was harming the church. And so we come to verse 14. And he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Paul is bringing his argument on their disunity, on their division. He's bringing that argument to a close by addressing what needs to happen going forward. He's appealed to humility. He's appealed to their identity in Christ. Now he's identifying the issue at hand, and he's saying they should do all things without grumbling or complaining. Now, like I said before, we have a tendency sometimes to take this verse and just rip it out of its theological context and make it just a life lesson. You know, do everything without complaining. But that's not what we should do. And to help us along with that, I want us to look at the Old Testament symbols that are being brought forward in what Paul's saying here. If we look, we see that it's not just a drumbeat for parents. It's not just something that you say to your kids. Like we say to our boys, we say, you get what you get and you don't pitch a fit. And that's kind of a drumbeat at the house to get them to obey. But it shouldn't be the same with this. It shouldn't be the same with Scripture. It's not just a drum to get obedience out of your kids. It has actual theological implication. And so if we notice, there is a pattern that Paul is bringing out in what he's addressing. In verse 14, he addresses grumbling, and that they should, in fact, have no grumbling or disputing. And then in verse 15, he says that the result of this lack of grumbling and disputing is that they would be blameless, innocent, and children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Now immediately, these phrases should draw your mind back to the Old Testament, in particular to the Exodus event. And we're going to look in Exodus and see how Paul's really appealing to something that happened previously with the Israelites and showing us this negative pattern for our behavior that was present in the people of God in the Old Testament. So let's jump back to Exodus 15. We're going to look in verse 22 through 24. As the Israelites are coming up out of Egypt, this is what we see happen. Starting in verse 22 of Exodus 15. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur, they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Now, I wanted to start in verse 22 because it gives us a little bit of context as to when this event happens. We obviously can't always take proximity in the text. So, you know, sentences or verses that are near each other aren't always near each other in time. 
But right here we can see that this is a process that happened within three days of them leaving the Red Sea. So it's just a short time that they've been in the wilderness so far. And a short time after they have seen the majestic display of God's power that they begin grumbling against God. But God, in his goodness and in his mercy, he provides for them, as he had always planned to do. God turned the bitter waters of Marah sweet so that they could drink of it. And so we might think they got the picture, they move on trusting God. Not so fast. Let's not stop there. Just a few lines later. So Exodus 16 now, verses 2 through 4. And the whole congregation of the peoples of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Just a few verses down the line. The Israelites are back to grumbling. So let's look at this for a minute. What kind of argument are they making? They could have said, hey, Moses, we're thirsty. Hey, Moses, we're, we're getting hungry. That's not what they say. What do they say? They say, Moses, it would be better if we were dead than here with you now having been delivered by God. It would be better if we had died in captivity than be here with you now. That's what they had for grumbling towards Moses. Now keep in mind how long they've been in the wilderness at this point. Days. Not weeks, not months, not years. Days. They've been in the wilderness and they start grumbling against Moses again for the second time. And then we see that God does provide for them. He provides them the manna from heaven. But then Moses does rebuke them for their grumbling. He says specifically in verse 8, Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. But God, in his mercy, in his goodness, in his provision for his people, still gives them the bread. And he gives it to him, he says, so that they will know when they eat of it that he is the Lord, their God. That they will know that their God has provided for him. But of course, as is the pattern for the Israelites, we turn the page into chapter 17 and we see this. Chapter 17 and verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people, uh, people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And again, we see that they turn their attention towards their fleshly needs and abandon thought of their faithful God and say, why did you bring us up? It would be better if we were still in captivity. Despite all of the things that God had done for them, every time they fell into a need of the flesh, they fell into grumbling. As if God hadn't already demonstrated his willingness to provide for them and his ability. But even though it says that the people grumbled against Moses, 
Moses reveals that it's, it's really not Moses they're grumbling against. It's God. They're grumbling against God. Now, this is the same God who, you know, by different accounts, depending on how you count it, less than 11 days prior had split the Red Sea so that they could walk across on dry land. This is that God. And then they come to a tiny well that is no good to drink. And they think the God that had the power over the sea is powerless against this well. And they think that their God will not provide. And so they grumble. Ah, oh, maybe God forgot that we had needs. Maybe God didn't know the things we need, they thought. And so they grumbled. Maybe so that he would just finally know what they needed since they knew better what they needed. Whatever God was doing for them right now was not enough for them. They wanted what they wanted, and they wanted it now. You know, earlier I mentioned that sometimes we over-secularize this text. We take it out of its context, and we just use it with our kids. And to a certain extent, that's good that we teach them these verses, and we have them hide it in their heart. And that brings me to one of our favorite things in our house, which is the old Steve Green Hide Them in Your Heart songs. Is anybody familiar with those? Yeah, absolutely. Sean's got it. The Hide Them in Your Heart songs are fantastic. Fantastically 90s. Steve Green standing around in his high-waisted jeans, like a dozen kids in neon shirts running around, singing verses from the Bible. It's awesome. And we use it at our house to help our children remember Scripture. And one of the songs that they sing is for this particular verse. They say, do everything without complaining or arguing. Now, I'm going to spare you me singing that now, but let me just make a point about it. One of the best parts of this song, and one of the favorites that, that we say around our house, is, is when the kids are demonstrating in the song examples of complaining and arguing. And one of the precious little children in the most Tennessee way possible says, oh mom, not Brussels sprouts again. We always think about that. It just hangs on to us. But there's a good point to be made about that. That little girl is complaining about Brussels sprouts from her parent. And that doesn't need to be all of the application that we have for this text, but it does help us understand what's going on in the hearts of a person who complains or grumbles because why is that little kid grumbling about Brussels sprouts which to be honest I would grumble about too why because she doesn't believe that her parents are really providing her the best thing for her right now because she doesn't believe that they are giving her what she really needs because she believes that she knows better than her parents what is good for her isn't it the same way with Israel as we look at this example, though, right now? Don't they really think they know better what they need than God does? Isn't that why they're grumbling? They get to the well and they're feeling thirsty, but they don't have the water that they want, and so they complain against God because certainly God must not actually know what they need. Or maybe worse, God's unwilling to give them what they need. So they doubt the goodness and the provision of God. And so just like the little girl complaining about Brussels sprouts, they're complaining about water and food in the wilderness. 
But let's be honest here. It's the same thing for us, isn't it? When we grumble, it's because we don't believe that our Father is providing for us the best things that we need right now. Because we don't believe our God is as good as he says he is. We think we know better. But complaining about God and what he provides to us is not the same thing as complaining about a restaurant who brings out your food cold. Restaurants can and do make mistakes. Our God doesn't. He always provides exactly what he intends to provide to you, and he provides it right on time. Perfect provision, perfectly on time. That is our God. And so when we complain about a restaurant, it's for them to correct themselves, and we grumble. But when we grumble towards God, we are accusing a perfect God of being imperfect. So, what are we doing when we bring that attitude, that attitude that has been fostered out in the world because of the complaint culture, what are we doing when we bring that attitude into the church? Now, don't get me wrong. We definitely don't want to have the, uh, have the reputation of being grumblers out in the world. We don't want that. But we certainly don't want to have the reputation of being grumblers within the body. Is there any room for grumbling within the church? Is everything in the church going to go exactly the way you want it to? No. The preacher is going to preach too long or too short. The songs we sing are going to be too old or too rock and roll. It'll be too hot in here or too cold. We don't have enough events. We have too many events. Whatever these things are, when we choose to complain about them, we sin against God within the body. But Paul tells us not to grumble or dispute. So why? Why does he tell us that? He tells us right here what the result is. He says if we do not grumble and dispute, rather if we do all things without grumbling or disputing, what happens? So that we may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. Verses Verse 15, so looking in 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. There's a, a promise that goes along with it. In our obedience, we can have blamelessness, innocence. We can be without blemish. And the result of that is that we are able to stand before God. So let's jump ahead in our look at the text in the Old Testament. We're going to jump from Exodus now into Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Here, Moses is reflecting on their time in the wilderness. They are standing outside the Holy Land, getting ready to go in and take it. And he is leading them on a reflection of their time in the wilderness. He's preaching to them concerning this time. From Egyptian captivity to now poised to enter into the Holy Land, a crossing that he will not make with them. He leads them then in verse, or chapter 32, sorry. He leads them in a song of reflection about their relationship with God. So let's look and see what Moses has to say as he makes much more clear this connection to our text in Philippians. Because Paul's words in Philippians come directly from this song. Deuteronomy chapter 32, starting in verse 1. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. 
May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. The things that Paul says we can be delivered from by doing all things without grumbling or disputing, those things are true of the generation that left out of Egypt and wandered in the wilderness. And God describes this truth about them. And so we see a contrast with the behavior that we are supposed to take on in Christ and the behavior that was demonstrated previously by the Old Testament people. So this generation who had been promised deliverance and an inheritance and had seen God's works on display in front of them, this same generation instead feared man more than God. Because, of course, as we know, the grumblings that we've looked at so far are not the only complaints they made against God. In fact, after just a handful of days, they make it to the edge of the Holy Land and they don't want to go in. And so they send spies into the land. And the spies come back and bring a report that the people in the land are strong, that it's filled with giants, that they couldn't possibly hope to take it. And so this generation, fearing man more than God, refuse to enter into the Holy Land. They refuse to take up the inheritance that God would give them. And so God says they are a crooked and twisted generation and disinherited because they are blemished. They had blemishes. They were stained by sin. And so the implication is clear here that anyone who is stained by sin cannot be a child of God. In the ceremonial law of God, the phrase without blemish or or some variation thereof appears dozens of times. And it is always used to describe the holiness that is required of something that is presented before God. And that no thing with a blemish, nothing with a blemish, would be acceptable before him. Not a sacrifice, not a priest, and certainly not a people. That which they were to present before God must be without blemish. That is the requirement for it to be received as acceptable. Leviticus chapter 22, verses 20 and 21, it says, You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow, or as a freewill offering from the herd or from the flock to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Being without blemish is a requirement to stand before God and be acceptable. So, what is the result of failing to do all things without grumbling or disputing. We've looked already at the result for doing all things without grumbling or disputing. That was to be blameless and innocent, a child of God without blemish. What is the result for failing to do those things? Well, what did God do to Israel when they were blemished and unfit? What did he do with that crooked and twisted generation? He set them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until every member of that generation who was of age died. 
so that not a single one of them would pass into the Holy Land to receive an inheritance. Only their children would receive it. That's what happened to it when they failed to do all things without grumbling or disputing. So what of us? If this instruction is that we ought not to grumble and dispute so that we can be blameless and innocent and without blemish, now what? Because honestly, if that's the standard, I haven't met it. And I know you're thinking to yourself that you haven't met it either. If I must be blameless and innocent, if I must be blameless and innocent and without blemish to be a child of God, the prohibition, the lone prohibition against grumbling and disputing is enough to disqualify me from being a child of God. If that was the only requirement, it would be enough to disqualify me. I'm sure you're thinking the same thing. Relax. It's not over. That's not the end of the sermon. There's good news to come. Because that's not the end of the story. Our failure to live up to the requirements of God's holy law is not the end of the story for us. So what do we do? Well, first of all, take a breath. Look around and thank God for the things that he's given you. Thank him for your good, the good, his good provision for you. And trust in your father and in his timing. And that in his timing, he has provided every good and perfect gift to you. Be thankful. Be glad. That's the first thing. But more importantly than that, we must consider Christ. We must consider Christ. So in this church, we must love one another well. We must bear with one another, forgive one another. These are the things that Paul is exhorting the Philippians to do. Each one of us is going to have expectations that others are going to fail. You're going to have expectations of me. I'm going to have expectations of you. And we will fail to meet those expectations. Maybe you hoped people would be more hospitable and welcome you into their home. And they weren't. Maybe you thought more consideration would be given in the church on some tertiary matter. And it wasn't. Maybe you thought people would give more. And they didn't. Maybe you thought the youth should have more parties, and they don't. Whatever it is, we should not seek to grumble over these things, over these differences. Because the truth is that most of the things that we are bothered with in churches are not primary doctrinal issues. Most of the things that we complain about, most of the things that we grumble about, most of the things that bother us when we're in here together on Sunday are relational issues. They're personal in fact, as I was first discerning the call to ministry, that was something that was told to me, was most pastors leave churches not because of doctrinal issues, but because of relational issues, because of personal issues, not moral failings, just issues with people in the church. Grumbling and disputing is a sin that destroys churches and destroys ministries. And so Paul is telling us here, grumbling and disputing, cut it out. And we looked and saw that we can be humble when we live together in unity as brothers and sisters. We can be humble because of Christ's humility. But in the same way, we can be blameless and innocent and unblemished because of Christ's innocence and blamelessness and unblemished character. We can look to Christ to fulfill that thing which we failed. 
You see, the very first sin was a disbelief in God. Disbelief in God's good provision and in his goodness. And from that moment on, mankind has continued with a pattern of disbelief in the goodness of God. And sin has ravaged us. The sin of the Israelites that we've been looking at tonight is just the next in a long line of acts of disbelief and grumbling against God because of sin. And for thousands of years, this pattern went unbroken until the Son delivered us from it. From eternity past, the Father and the Son covenanted together that the Son would come in the flesh, live a sinless life, and die the death due to sinners, redeeming a people for himself through his death and resurrection. Christ led a life of absolute perfect humility and trust in his Father. He trusted in the goodness of God and in the provision of God. Even on the night that he was betrayed, as he prepared to go to the cross, he prayed to the Father. In Luke 22, verse 42, he says this, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. When he approached the Father with his desire, according to the flesh, to to not endure the suffering, he did not presume to think that God didn't know that he was going to suffer. He didn't presume to think that God didn't care that he was going to suffer. And he didn't dare to think that the Father was doing something evil or deficient to him in any way. He did not believe that the Father wanted bad things for him. He trusted in the Father. And so Christ went to the cross willingly. He went to endure suffering greater than starvation, suffering greater than being thirsty. And he did it without grumbling. Isaiah prophesied about this. He says in Isaiah 53, verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And in Hebrews 12, we get a little more on this. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Even though he knew something bad was going to happen to him, he knew he would be crucified He knew he was going to die an ignoble death. He knew it. And he did not grumble against God for it. Is that worse than the things that you grumble about? Do you think the things that bother you are worse than dying on a cross? And yet we see in our example Christ that he did not grumble or complain or dispute. Instead, he took willingly because of the joy that was prepared before him our sins upon himself, upon the cross, and died for them. This is the gospel, that we were sinners, but Christ died the just penalty for our sins. He died that penalty. And if we believe in him, we do not have to perish, but instead have eternal life. If you reject this gospel, If you reject the truths of God's word, 
then you will fall under the condemnation as a grumbler and a disputer. You will not be blameless. You will not be innocent. You will not be unblemished. Instead, if you reject the gospel, when you go before the judgment seat, God will reject you. And you will be cast into the eternal darkness of hell. But, but, if you believe in this gospel, if you trust in Christ, who was himself humble to the point of death, who was himself blameless and innocent, And without blemish, if you trust in him, his blamelessness becomes your blamelessness. His innocence becomes your innocence. The unblemished lamb is the one who stands before God in your stead, taking on your sins so that you may stand unblemished, clothed in white before the Father because of the blood of the Son. If you believe in this gospel, you will be a child of God without blemish. And you will be received unto the Father, not rejected, brought as a beloved child. Though you were faithless, though you were faithless in your grumbling, though you were faithless in your disputing, Christ was faithful. And his faithfulness, if you believe, his faithfulness is your faithfulness. And you can trust in him. His righteousness will be your righteousness. And you will be acceptable in the eyes of the Father. In Revelation chapter 3, Christ says this, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. When we read Paul's words here, they're more than just secular thought. They're more than just guidance in how we interact with one another. They're a requirement for our holiness, a requirement that ultimately we all fail. But Christ does not fail. Christ fully kept the law. He is our blamelessness and our innocence. And because of him, we can be, without blemish, children of God. Let's go before this good God in prayer. Almighty Father, we thank you that though we fail constantly, that though we sin against you constantly, that we have built up a a record of debt against you that can't be paid by our own hands, Lord, even though those things are true, you sent your Son to die upon the cross to pay our debts and redeem us. And so, Father, we do ask that you would continue to work in us, build in us a desire to move away from grumbling and disputing. But give us a desire to act that way because of the hope that we have in Christ. And we know that he enables us to do it. Lord, we ask you, because of your goodness and your good providence, to continue to work in us and to keep us and watch over us now. In Christ's name we pray.